Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Bank of England, like most reserve banks around the world, has been trying to develop growth in the economy through quantitative easing. And now the Treasury Committee has launched an inquiry into it. What impact has monetary policy been having and what needs to change? So, good on the UK government for at least looking into this. The Treasury Committee is holding an inquiry into the effectiveness and impact of UK monetary policy since 2008. It's going to examine the effectiveness of monetary policy in meeting the inflation target, the unintended consequences of that policy, and the prospects for monetary policy in the UK. And they're accepting submissions until the 5th of March. And, uh, look, it really doesn't matter so long as they've got Steve Keane's submission. Uh, and that's... Uh, or- Already in there, so that's good. Uh, so I, I guess, Steve, I mean, first of all, do you think this inquiry is going to change anything? Yeah, I mean, this is one thing I, I say quite regularly. I'm quite happy to say it again, that Britain has a, a record of being willing to uh, listen to views it doesn't necessarily agree with. So there's a capacity for debate in English society, which really sets it apart, certainly from Australia, where I came from, but also obviously America, where it's, no, no, it's not debating at shouting matches. And in, in Australia, what they do instead, if they hold an inquiry like this, they select somebody beforehand whose conclusions yeah. they can be certain of and get the result they want, regardless of what you submit to it. Yeah. Uh, this, this is actually quite different, I think. It's uh, uh, England in general, as I said, is, can be expected to actually listen to um, to different uh, perspectives, um, and the people on the committee are an interesting range. Actually, I, I didn't know the uh, committee members beforehand, but looking at them, there's a number of people that have got engineering backgrounds and also economics backgrounds. I'm, I'm happy with the engineers, as you can imagine, than, than the than the economists. But there are people there who are actually able to listen to the argument and will listen. I think so. I'm, I'm, I'm quite impressed by it. So the nub of the argument really is the, is the question around quantitative easing, isn't it? Which, which we'll get to. But let's go over your submission in, in a in a bit of detail because it provides a useful snapshot of of your view of how the economy really works i mean starting with and we're going over a bit of old ground here so we'll, we'll move over this quickly and, and spend a bit more time on qe but it does start with that fundamental role that the bank plays that the bank adds to adds to private debt it's not an intermediary it, it adds to private debt talk us through that very quickly yeah well the simple idea is that when the bank lends you money it uh, says it's a great idea phil here's a million pounds by the way you owe us a million pounds so banks create money by creating debt at the same time and that is something which is ignored by the mainstream they pretend that banks are what i call the ashley madisons of, of money and that they don't actually give you any money but they introduce you to somebody else who wants to give you money for a fee yeah. when in fact they're more than genuine right they're the red light district of money they'll give you money but it comes with a debt now that's that's the, what I then cover in the first part of the um, of the presentation. That if you look at what actually caused the financial crisis, if you ask a mainstream economist to ignore the role of money, they'll just basically say exogenous shock, uh, which is a bit funny to people who uh, aren't economists because they say the exogenous shock sector shock came from the finance sector, and most sensible people would think the finance sector is in 
indeed part of the economy, so how can it be exogenous? But I then show that over the, taking the American data, which is the clearest on this front, the most, uh, uh, most indicative, right from 1945 all the way through to 2008, the increase in private debt, which is credit, change in the, the change in debt, your debt is is your increase in debt, and it's also your increasing spending capacity out of credit. That was never negative; it was always positive. Uh, when the financial crisis hit, uh, the credit became negative. The actual change in debt was negative, so people were paying their debt down or going bankrupt to the tune of five percent of GDP per year, and that sucked demand out of the economy and it collapsed. And with a slightly more volatile pattern, exactly the same thing happened in Eng in, uh, in Britain in 2009, 2010. And that negative credit is what caused the huge slowdown uh, in the economy there, as it did in America. Well, I mean, if, if you ask the man in the street what went wrong uh, back in 2007, 2008, they'd say, well, there's a whole lot of people bought houses <coughs> that they just couldn't afford to, uh, to, to pay for. Uh, and, and and so they defaulted and the, the banks went belly up as a result of that. I mean, is that uh, too simplistic yeah. a view of it all? That, no, that's, that's quite an accurate uh, view of it all. And what it meant was that people, uh, when people were borrowing money to buy houses, uh, then they were creating additional demand in the economy for both assets and goods and services because when you buy that house, you buy the white goods and you buy the paint and so on and so forth to, to redecorate once you move in. Uh, and that, that source of demand simply disappeared when people who'd already taken out mortgages found they weren't about to sell the houses for a profit. They therefore couldn't uh, make the gain they anticipated they'd make. They sold at a loss, and that then fed through to people saying, I'm not going to buy into the market right now in that case. So the demand coming from growing mortgages completely disappeared, became shrinking mortgages, and the economy tanked. And so the public's gut feeling that that was the cause of it is, is quite correct. Right. And yet, you know, people in Australia particularly uh, keep on buying houses they, they, they clearly can't afford. But, I mean, is there – so that brings us to the question. Is there a tipping point where – Private debt to GDP, which I, you know you see as being an important indicator. If yeah. private debt gets out of kilter with GDP, in other words, we're borrowing more than we're, you know, the economy is really creating. I mean, is there a point where that becomes a problem? Because in in the UK, uh, obviously the ratio is not as bad as it is in Australia, and I think Canada is another one where it's pretty bad. And since two thousand and eight, yeah. People have moderated their level of debt, uh, perhaps because they're worried about holding too much debt, or maybe it's because the banks weren't offering yeah. it to them because the banks are worried similarly. So the level of debt is still high, but the demand for it has decreased. So that becomes less of a problem, yeah. doesn't it? Well, it becomes less of a problem, but it's also less of a, less of a solution in the sense that we've relied upon, for the whole post-war period, we've relied upon credit growing credit. And uh, the English data is actually quite remarkable on this front. There was no trend in overall debt. So credit was sub-positive sometimes, uh, negative others, and and an average growing no faster than GDP. So the debt ratio was constant from about 1965 till about 1982-83. But from 82-83, England's gone on a borrowing binge and you went from the private debt level being less than 60% of GDP in 1982 to 195% of GDP in 2010. Now, since then, as you say, people have delevered. But what it means is uh, there's been, since the crisis began, there's been, on average, credit's been pretty close to zero. Whereas before the crisis, credit was something close to 
uh, from the last 20 or 30 years, 10 to 15 percent of GDP. So a huge source of demand has disappeared from the economy, and that's why it's stagnated. Right. Okay. But I mean, isn't there a fine balancing act that could actually see us through this? So that okay, we we have to accept low growth, but we because we're deleveraging, but we get you know maybe it'll take 10 or 20 years, but we get through that problem and we don't we don't reach this tipping point where we hit a crisis because that debt to GDP ratio has increased beyond the point of no return. That would be good if it could be true, um, but the empirical record is not particularly promising. This is where I'm relying upon work by Richard Vague, as the American philanthropist who did found two of America's major credit card companies and is now uh, having being very a socially oriented character is now realising that debt is a major cause of uh, economic crises, and he's commissioned research. Uh, to look back at the last one and a half centuries of financial crises and ask how did we get out of the situation of too much private debt? Uh, and he said, without this, is the only cases uh, where they, you got out of private debt in a positive sense, where either way you had a country like Saudi Arabia, for example, where a huge increase in the oil prices dramatically increased the cash flows and enabled debt to be paid down because so much money was coming in through exports, uh, or debt write-offs. There's right. no, no case in the last one and a half centuries of an economy growing its way out of an excessive level of debt. It always involved at some point some massive debt write-offs, whether that was through um, actions by a little bloke in Germany back in the 1930s who refused to pay all the debts of Germany uh, and, and then led to an economic boom when all the debt was cancelled as a result. Uh, or it was things like the Argentinian write-off uh, where the banks were forced to take haircuts and so on. So there's only way out of this in the past has been debt write-offs, not growing your way out of trouble. Right. And in fact, when you look at the English data right now, even though it's delevered from about 195% of GDP as its private debt level to 160% in the last uh, six or seven years, uh, and that's a you know, substantial level of deleveraging, uh, it's now rising once more compared to GDP. Right. So we're not going to get out of that level of about 160%, 170%. And that's where a little country called Japan has been for the last quarter of a century. Yeah, so the only way... So if we, if we, if we don't do anything about it, then we have to accept the fact we are just stuck with no growth in the economy, basically, irrespective of whatever we do. If we've got that debt hanging over us, that's the problem. So your, your point about fixing the problem in, in your submission is we've got to reduce debt somehow reverse the impact of excessive borrowing on asset prices, particularly uh, houses, and put in place measures to stop this debt-driven asset price spiral happening again. Uh, Sounds very easy. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we have to do. I know, I know. Well, the funny thing is that in actually doing the submission, uh, of course, there were a couple of papers by the Bank of England that try to assess the quantitative impact on the economy of QE. And they, uh, they're, you know, they're good. They're good papers. I, mean, I have a lot of time for the Bank of England, as I think you know. They're good quality papers, within largely within the conventional uh, framework of thinking, but but well done. And what I have done is say, well, one thing they said they didn't have is a structural model to talk about the impact of them. Um, of QE, they were working yep. econometric estimates, or they were doing what they call some simple monetarist arithmetic. Well, using my Minsky software, I've built a, a very simple but nonetheless structural model of QE. And what it let me do is compare what was actually done, which is QE for the banks, whether the government bought bonds off the banks 
uh, and then gave them excess reserves that they hoped they would therefore use to um, to buy other assets with and therefore drive up asset prices and by driving up asset prices made people feel wealthier who actually own those yeah. assets and then they, they then spend money into the economy and that stimulates the economy. That was actually, was actually done with $200 billion worth of money and I worked out it was worth roughly about $120 billion worth of additional GDP. Right. And that's pretty much the level that the Bank of England worked out as well. So and then I worked out what would happen if you'd actually done it for what's called people's QE, where you gave the money not to the banks, but directly to people's bank accounts. Yeah. And you don't want this much. Okay. okay. But, but the the impact was ten was was about six times right. the so scale. Spend, yeah. le- spend less and get more. Well, okay, let, let's go back a step because you raced through a whole other stuff really quickly there in terms, yeah, of, sure. uh, in terms of how quantitative easing really works. So let's go through this step by step. So, uh, I mean, the idea behind it is that the, the Bank of England wants to push money into the economy. It uses quantitative easing as the method of doing that. Uh, and it buys government bonds, basically, doesn't it? So the, yeah, uh, It does, yeah. Uh, so how, uh, just take us through step by step how that pr- uh, approach works and how... Uh, it's supposed to lower the cost of borrowing, which is the intention, isn't it? The idea is, look, we'll buy government bonds. That'll make it cheaper for uh, for businesses and for people to borrow, and that borrowing is therefore going to help businesses to to expand and grow, and that's going to help the economy. I think that's the idea behind it in, in principle, that's, isn't that's, it? That's one of the ideas behind it, and that's one of the bad ideas behind it, because right. as I point out, one of the one of the symptoms of the crisis was was too highly levered asset prices, and what is QE doing but pushing up asset prices by a different mechanism? So in that sense, it's, a, it's making one of the symptoms of the crisis worse. So how's it, so how's it, how's it doing that? Because it's... So if the government's buying government bonds, those government bonds are there, and I could buy those government bonds, you know, or institutions could buy the government bonds, but the uh, but the central bank comes along and says, well, we want to buy them. So first of all, that pushes up the price of those government bonds, doesn't it? That's the first step. It, it, does, it does, yeah. yeah. And um, because you've got the government saying, we're going to be on the buy side of this trade indefinitely until we've got uh, accumulated a positive sum of of, of assets, which means, of course, you driving up the demand for, for for financial assets, you'll drive up the price, and that will because the price is inversely related to the interest rate, that will drive down the interest rate and reduce borrowing costs. So that's their that's their mechanism they've got in their minds. There, the question is, how does it do it? So that's actually the technical bit. So let's go through that because mm. what I've what I've said. Imagine you have uh, a government deciding to buy a two hundred million billion dollars worth of bonds over one year, then for that two hundred billion. For that year, at the rate of $200 billion per year, it's buying bonds off a bank. And when it buys those bonds off a bank, of course, the bank is selling bonds, which are one of its assets. It's getting back entries in its bank account at the central bank, which are reserves, which is another asset. So there's no change at all in the overall value of assets, just you've got more in effectively cash in your bank account at the central bank, less in income earning assets. Well, that means for the bank, its, it's income as assets haven't changed, but the proportion of those that are generating income have gone down. So that then motivates that bank to buy shares or buy other, buy other assets. So what it then have is buying shares off another bank uh, because what it has to do with those reserves, it has to, reserves have to fall but the assets have to rise on the other side. So the way that's done is it buys share uh, buys shares through a broker who banks at another bank. Right. So what it then does, it's 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 this bank reserves fall, the other bank reserves rise, 
And with that rise in reserves, that's because the first bank is buying shares off, this, off a broker who banks with the second bank so that the assets of the of the first bank at shuffle of reserves go down and share uh, uh, shares that it owns go up so that's that's the mechanism in a very stylized way sounds like a lot of well, money sounds like a lot of money moving around a banking system without actually making its way into the broader economy Exactly, exactly, because the only way it makes it into the broader economy is if since the imagine that the whole $200 billion worth of additional demand of shares has driven shares up in total value by $200 billion, meaning people who own shares can then sell them to capitalise that gain. So what I presume is it's, just, it's a perfectly, perfectly effective transmission mechanism. Let's imagine the whole $200 billion of, of extra money that's been used to buy shares by the bank turns up as a gain that the people who own the shares who sold them to the bank can capitalise the $200 billion, which they do over time by one of two ways, either they buy other assets with the money or they consume with the money. Now, what the bank is relying upon is the consumption effect. But of course, extremely wealthy people who get an increase in their, in their value of one particular asset are more likely to spend that money buying other assets than mm. they are to buy goods and services. So I allow a sort of a, 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 a 10% consumption, 90% assets uh, purchase ratio out of that money, which is more reasonably realistic. Um, you know, they're even probably exaggerating the consumption effect that will come out of it. So the actual benefit to the economy ends up being that 10% of the game, which is about $20 billion worth, that turns up in the, in the, in the private economy. Uh, where they buy goods and services, you know, consume, they buy a few Lamborghinis and Rolls and things like that, and maybe a few massages, uh, and and that ends up ending up in in the um, in the in the real economy, and that's the stimulus that increases consumption right. and hopefully causes more GDP and more inflation. Well, I mean, that, we, course, on that asset, I mean, we just need to look at it as Australia as an example where people, uh, asset prices go up uh, in, the, in the form of house prices. People with expensive houses go, well, this is great. I've got all this equity. I'll buy another house. And they push that uh, yeah. <laughs> the value of houses up. And once they've done that, they go, well, look at all this equity I've got on two houses. Now I might as well have three or four. And uh, I mean, we're seeing this phenomenal amount of increase in the uh, to the point now, I think, in Australia where there are more loans for people buying houses for buy to rent than there are people buying houses as their primary residence. Yeah, and that's the you, you end up with a totally disordered system where the, the people who aren't in the housing can't afford to buy in. So you're creating a social problem yeah. by trying to solve another social problem, which is low demand after a financial crisis. So the so, so the alternative yeah. is is what you're calling QE for the people. So if there's if people aren't spending, if the economy is not growing because this money is not making it into the economy, then push the money into the economy and help people create the demand. Inject money into people's that's, bank accounts. That's right. And when I, when I model, like I said, if I, if I model, it's a very simple model. If I model the impact of doing standard QE, then the, um, the increase in, uh, in GDP uh, is of the order of uh, $27 billion out of $200 billion in. Whereas if you go and say, let's try it for doing it QE to the people and see what the benefit is in that case, then the benefit ends up being something of the order of... Uh, 244 billion, 10 times as much. And right. or, of course, you, don't, you wouldn't necessarily want that much of a boost, but it means you could have done the same boost with one-tenth as much QE. So rather than needing to do 
$200 billion worth of QE to get the impact. You could have done $20 billion of QE for the people. But how does the accountancy behind that work out? Because with, with QE as it currently stands, I mean, the, the, the central government, the Bank of England, buys bonds. Uh, the intention is that that money is going to be paid back, isn't it? So it's not, it doesn't see, you know, it's, it's they're not actually, it's not an item that's going to end up on, a, on, the, on the government's, uh, bud, uh, as a budgetary item for the government, for example. Whereas you're putting money into people's bank account, well, then we know that's not going to be paid back. It's just going to appear as an expense isn't it? Yeah, but the thing is, it's, it, 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 the question is, how long is that going to be there? If you look at the level of excess reserves that apply right now globally, and uh, the American data is the easiest to find on that front, it, it's phenomenal, and it's not coming down, because the, if, if, if the government decided to reverse this process, then quite possibly the stock market is going to come plunging, because the only the, when you look at the impact, the impact of QE is to drive up asset prices, and it's a quite a dramatic increase in asset prices. We're now back to the scale of the second American case, again, where QE has been practised, of course, for even longer than England. Uh, the asset prices are back to the same scale they were for the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, they're massively overvalued on almost Robert Shiller's wonderful CAPE index, which is the uh, uh, measures the value of shares now to the accumulated earnings of the previous 10 years. And we're now back in absolute 1929, 2008 peak valuation levels. And I really think, having done this analysis, that QE certainly is the major factor behind it because those excess reserves actually arguably provide a permanent pressure for the banks to continue trying to buy assets. I, I model this as though it's only a one-through effect, so the $200 billion in the English case just has a, a one-off effect as one bank tries to rebalance its portfolio and the other one ends up with all the reserves. Uh, but it's quite possible, and this is what I happened when I first tried to model it, that the shuffling of reserves as banks try to get rid of reserves which they simply can't get rid of unless the government buys bonds back or the public takes money out in terms of physical cash as they continue shuffling that around they end up putting permanent pressure on buying on the stock market no. and that may well be the major thing so long as the excess reserves are there the price levels of the share market is going to rise but if the government reverses direction and tries to buy those bonds back the share market's going to crash now you know what happens when politicians potentially see themselves causing a financial crisis so this is into yeah. yeah. We're, we're stuck. We're stuck. <laughs> so, but I mean, those reserves. I mean, they're there. This is the reserves. This is in effect money that's sitting with the central bank, uh, and it's there. Uh, sometimes it's larger than at other times. But the idea is, this is money that moves around between banks as those banks need it, or to or to buy those bonds as as is is seen as needed to try and stabilize the the currency and control inflation. That's what those reserves yeah. are there for, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, but the reserves reserves are basically, uh, you, you and I have cash in our bank accounts, and if I wanted to buy your microphone off you, then I'd need to transfer money to buy it off you. Uh, the, the banks themselves have accounts at the central bank to reflect the impact of those transactions, because if you've got money in, in Barclays and I've got it in Lloyd's, there's got to be a transfer of res reserves between those two banks to enable the purchase as well. And so the reserves are there fundamentally just to balance the shuffling around of, of money between different uh, banks, uh, private bank accounts. And the, the, because the banks don't make any money out of it, they will try to keep that absolutely the minimum. So what we've got out of QE is rather than having the minimum, they've got all these excess reserves. And in trying to get rid of them, it's like the old classic game of hot potato. It goes from one hand to another. You can't get rid of it. Nobody right. drops the potato. Nobody right. can drop the potato. 
So, it, but it, it, but the the understanding currently is that it just moves around between financial institutions. What you're actually saying is, well, let's let's take it out of that loop. Let's let's give it to the people. Um, but you can you can only do that once or twice, can't you? Because once those reserves are gone, they're gone. Well, I mean, the people can if they got a hand in it into people's hands, they just turn over more rapidly. The real weakness with QE is that it's relying upon such an indirect process to actually get money into the economy. Yeah. So, and because you rely upon shareholders' increase in wealth then generating additional consumption by those uh, investors. First of all, you've got people who spend very slowly compared to the amount of money they've got they spend slowly compared to the poor have got to spend the money they've got very rapidly. So you get a very low turnover out of it. And and, and secondly, the main thing is most of it goes to asset prices further anyway. So you, you're, you're putting 90% of your pressure, you're wasting in, in driving, up, driving up asset prices, which are themselves a problem in the first instance, given the levels of overvaluation. Uh, courtesy of leverage by the previous private bubble, and then you're dribbling money into the economy. So you get a really, really trivial impact. If your main purpose, and this is what was QE is described as, the main purpose of QE was to drive up inflation to reach the Bank of England's inflation target of 2%. Now, it could have done that with, with 90% less money by doing QE for the people. Because you, I think it's a fairly convincing argument. Right, because it's going to push up consumption. But isn't there, isn't there a danger that people will look and go, well, look, we're holding all this private debt. Uh, thanks so much for that money in the bank account. Uh, you know, and arguably, this is what happened when Kevin Rudd tried it in Australia. Thanks for all that money. Uh, I'm going to pay off a bit of that nasty debt I've got or I'm going to b- b- reduce the amount of money I've got on my mortgage. And that would be a good. That would be a good thing. That's that's actually that's the the a non that is the non inflationary way of enabling growth to start happening again. That's why I talk in favour of what I call a modern debt jubilee. Because if you did that, with the condition that people had to do it rather than leaving it as an arbitrary choice, what you would do is reduce the private debt burden and enable the economy to start having credit based demand again. Uh, the absence of which is the major reason why the economy is stagnant. So long as they don't say, well, this is great, I've reduced the debt on this house, therefore I've got more equity available now so I can go and buy another one. Exactly, because that's the whole problem. The, the banking sector at the moment creates money for not for predominantly on the basis of collateral-based lending, and the, by lending itself, it drives up the value of the collateral and gives this positive feedback loop leads to too much debt and a financial crisis. So you have to change things and say we're not going to allow banks to lend simply on the basis of collateral, they have to base, they can only lend on the basis of the income earning capacity of the collateral being purchased. Right. And then you're talking about rent, not uh, house price appreciation, and you'd have a damn sale less money being lent to finance mortgages, and therefore for banks to make money, they need to be financing businesses instead, so which what, is where we need the bloody money to go. Of course. So, so let's, okay, so what are the numbers then? What, I mean, what's in the UK, because of course this is for a, for a U, Bank of England inquiry, sorry, for a UK Treasury yeah. inquiry. So, uh, so what is the, what is the private debt to GDP ratio currently? Where does it need to be to really get the economy kicking again, so that there's uh, people feel as though they've got you know the the, the confidence uh, and ability to spend? And how much money needs to be spent injecting that cash into people's bank accounts to try and get to get us to that to that stage? This is the scary stuff because we've and the one I'm really pleased to be using English data here because American data is. Um, uh, it's got this overall growing trend from tiny debt to uh, in the post-war debt of 30, 35% of GDP through to 170%, and it's basically an exponential trend. The English data is quite fascinating because England didn't have quite the same rapacious banking sector 
as the as the Americans have. So between 1965 and 1982, which is a fair substantial range of years, the private debt ratio in England ranged between 60 and 65% of GDP. And if you go back to 1945 to 1955, it bounced around at about 40% of GDP. Now, they weren't bad years for the English economy. Right. Okay. So that's what we've got to get to. We've, we've, got, we've got to get ourselves back from a debt level of which peaked at 195% and is currently 160% of GDP down to 60%. That's an entire year's worth of GDP in terms of the debt ratio. We need to reduce it to get back to a sustainable, non-speculatively based economy. I'm sort of guessing that the amount of money that's sitting in reserve in the Bank of England reserves is not going to be enough to do that. No, but the funny thing, well, they, they can create it. They can create that much money tomorrow. It simply is a keystroke operation uh, to create that money. But you wouldn't want to do that much in one go because, of course, you're, the other effects you've got to look at is how much of that money is going to leak into um, imports rather than being used domestically. How much inflation are you going to generate? Because with my idea of a modern debt jubilee, you'd be giving to people whether they were savers or, or borrowers. The borrowers couldn't spend any more, more money, but the savers could. It would also and massively devalue the pound, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the other thing about it is that if you also ended up getting an economy which suddenly started growing again because you didn't have the debt uh, overhang suppressing it, then you could get um, some success out of that. But the trouble is, of course, the English economy compared to the American economy actually has a fairly genuine level of, uh, of high employment at the moment. The American data I don't trust. The English data looks more reliable. Um, but it is still, uh, you know, it's a zero contract hour type world. Um, you'd, you'd have to, if you actually put that much physical monetary stimulus in your economy, you'd need to drastically change your industrial structure. And you simply just can't do that quickly. So this has to be something that's done, which is done slowly and measured doses. Uh, you could do it, but I would do it over a substantial period of time, like of the order of a decade, um, rather than trying to do it in one bang. Right. Do you, so, do you think they will listen? I mean, well, I mean, it, uh, the, the the logic's there clearly, uh, but you are arguing against a, a whole school of near neoclassical thought, and irrespective of what the Treasury think, well, I guess irrespective of what the the Bank of England thinks, the uh, the Treasury has got to see things the same way, uh, and you've got to you've got to explain it as well to the politicians who then have to explain it to the broader economy. Uh, this is a big shift in thinking. I mean, most people are thinking, well, you know, the uh, think of the government operating like a household budget and really don't understand the intricacies of how the Bank of England works. There's a, there's a, a big education process here. There is, and that's why I've written it in a fairly, uh, you know, non-ideological way. Um, but looking at the membership of the committee, there are people on the committee who could understand uh, the type of argument I'm making, because it really is based on monetary flows and like an engineering perspective on the economy. And some of the people on that committee actually have backgrounds in engineering, uh, others in economics. Um, there's a potential to listen to the whole the whole thing. And uh, because QE was done under both political parties, it doesn't necessarily have a you know conservative versus labor flavor about it. It's something which uh, I hope will get past some of that. So I'm not I'm not holding out. You know, like I reckon it'll, it'll be the uh, uh, the beginning of sensible economic policy in England. But it's something where at least I think the ideas will get into circulation. And again, as I say, that's one thing which you, the the British uh, society can hold its head high, 
high in, in favour of compared to uh, America and Australia. Final question then. Some people would say, well, that all is very interesting, but it's based on the premise that we don't have growth. And yet uh, we have green shoots occurring all over the world. In, in, in Europe, we're starting to see uh, uh, inflation starting to pick up and uh, GDP starting to increase slowly. The same here, certainly in America as well. People would say, well, look, you know, what's the problem? We've been through bad times. The good times are starting to come back. Yeah, they were saying that in Japan in about 1998 too, if I remember <laughs> rightly. Uh, it, it's, it's one of these things where what's actually driving it is a revival in credit once more. You look at the American data, credit is currently growing at 7%. It's currently at 7% of GDP, and in England it's about 8% of GDP. Yeah. So the basis of this success is that we've got a revival in credit demand once more from an already excessive level of private debt. Now, the, the Japanese history has been, been up a bit and then down again, and up a bit and then down again, and it's been going on for one quarter of a century. Um, we politic- politically can't afford that in America or the or the UK or any really OECD nation because without the huge trade surplus Japan is running, which counteracts the impact of declining credit, and without the, the social and racial homogeneity of that society, you end up with social conflict and and you know, and, and and rust belt effects. Yeah. And uh, that's not that's not something that clearly looking at the current political. Uh, developments all around the world western society can't sustain that no it may make donald trump seem mild in comparison with the man who replaces him absolutely uh a lot of food for thought there uh, appreciate your time we'll uh, we'll catch you again soon okay mate bye and of course the news media continues to be fixated uh with reporting on government debt and ignoring private debt and yet as steve's saying private debt seems to be the really big issue in fact uh the government here in the uk the government's borrowing bill is reducing they uh, reported a surplus of 9.4 billion pounds in january that's the highest since 1999 everyone thinks that's great news and yet Private borrowing is increased. In fact, just this last week, figures from the British Bankers Association show that the total consumer borrowing growth rose to more than half a billion dollars uh, in January, more than doubling December's figures, because, of course, interest rates are so low. And that's the Debunking Economics podcast. Next time, currency manipulation for beginners, or how to really cheese off Donald Trump. That's next time. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for your time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.